Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respects to Elders, past and present. This episode contains explicit language, a couple of F-bombs, and a reference to suicide, so listener discretion is advised. It's Wednesday the 29th of September 1976, the height of the swinging safari suit and keys in the salad bowl era, and no one can doubt Australia's place as a hip modern nation not with so many international celebrities washing up on our sunny shores. American model and actress Lauren Hutton will be guest of honour at beauty pageants at Walton stores in Sydney, and her even hotter and more highly paid successor, Margot Hemingway, is heading to Melbourne to spruit cosmetics and her new flick, fittingly called Lipstick, even though it's actually a sleazy rape and revenge drama. If you're up for more edginess, of a comic variety, then young Scotsman Billy Connolly is in Australia to do gigs in every capital city. Other imported acts doing the rounds include English singer and multi-octavist Cleo Lane, the British a cappella outfit The King Singers, and a couple of real American kings of the blues in B.B. King and Bo Diddley. Even our own stars are coming home to wow the crowds. Kamal's going to play the Opera House, having just knocked him out at New York's Carnegie Hall. And Nusha Fox, Aussie lead singer of the British band Fox, is about to tour to support their smash hit single, single bed. 
But the biggest visiting celebrity isn't a model, actor, comedian, singer or musician. He's that rare beast, the journalist who's become a superstar. He's going to grace television screens, radio waves and even the stage of the Opera House as a guest presenter at the dazzling Sammy Awards. He's an interviewer who's clashed with now-disgraced US President Richard Nixon. And he's so famous that decades later, he'll even have a movie made about him. Yep, that A-list journalist David Frost is back in Australia. The British legend's here to conduct interviews for his latest TV series and to do radio shifts at 2SM, during which he'll casually call up the likes of his mates Henry Kissinger and Bob Hope. But down this list of celebrities, down, down, in fact, down and dirty, there's another creature now just arriving at Sydney Airport. Is he a model? Only of bad living. An actor? Many would say he specialises in acting abominably. Is he a comedian? He's definitely that, though the jury's out whether he's funny ha-ha or funny peculiar. But he is, like David Frost, that rare beast, a journalist who's become a celebrity. More than that, though, he's changed the very way that many people think about reporting. He's Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, self-appointed dean of gonzo journalism. The doctor's coming out for an Australian lecture tour. Two dates in Sydney, two dates in Melbourne. Fear and loathing down under? You betcha. For $6 a ticket, you can experience it for yourself. But a young Melbourne bloke named Peter Olszewski is going to have a close-up and personal view. That's because he scored a once-in-a-lifetime gig. Peter's to be Hunter S. Thompson's PR man and handler. Peter Olszewski is actually perfect for this gig. 28 years old, he's a former advertising man who's dropped out, turned on and tuned into a new life as a countercultural publisher, hippie writer, and marijuana rights activist. If you read the alternative press, which I'm sure you do, you will have read his tokes, I mean takes, under the byline JJ McRoach. Peter Olszewski has been hired by his promoter mate, Mike Roberts, alias Fastbucks, to be Hunter S. Thompson's handler for the next two weeks. Now, at Sydney Airport, Peter's about to make contact. He'll remember it this way, quote, The doctor lopes out of the customs area from a distance. But hang about, you don't need me telling you this bit. Let's hear it from the man who wrote it. Peter Olszewski, a.k.a. JJ McRoach, now 75 and living in Cambodia. The doctor lopes out of the customs area. From a distance, he looks mean. Close up, he looks mean. Tall. Well built, no flab, very athletic. Dressed like a vacationing sportsman in neat slacks and shirt. His only concession to hip them being a plated silver bracelet and a gold magic mushroom pendant, a floppy white hat and a hard set face. Grim eyes lurking behind the smoke glass lenses of Air Force style shades sternly sizes up, giving me the unnerving feeling that we resemble free speed stricken rats skipping around a sleek well-fed serpent who for the time being, has no inclination to deal with us. But when the hunger sets in, introductions are offered. 
The doctor begins to speak. And in most cases, anybody anybody can do that time for him, just on, for that reason. The cigarette holder, by, uh, which has become his trademark of sorts, bubbles up and down, preceding the sound, jerks from corner mouth to centre mouth I, I and back again, and rolls, slips, dips, uh, loops, as though it's sending out its own uh, semaphore signal to aid the tumble, unmodulated, mumble, broad, American-accented words, which is chewed, swallowed, rolled and spat out of barely-parted lips in staccato bursts of machine-gun rapidity. Listen closely, too, because the doctor does not repeat his words, parrying the queried pardon with a short, stony silence, and then launching into the next phase of the indiscriminately sprayed conversation. After being subjected to several minutes of this verbal idiosyncrasy, we compare notes and piece together the fragments of conversation we understood. We think the doctor said, one, he was not happy with the flight and wanted to know which of us bastards were responsible for the executive seating. Two, he hadn't slept the last two days and nights. Three, contrary to what he'd been told about our customs officials, he had not been searched and was vexed in mid-flight he had ditched the remainder of his drugs, in particular a bottle of mescaline. Four. However, he has a solution, a phone number written on a piece of paper. It is imperative that a connection now be made with that phone number. Dr Thompson will be extremely uncooperative until this is done. The doctor is whisked to his hotel room by limousine. Later, we sit in his room and chit-chat. Fastbucks has connected with the phone number. There is a knock on the door, and in steps a friggin' Christ almighty uniform. A customs uniform at that. Oh dear, is the party over? No, the customs uniform is smiling. Hands Thompson a package and explains to the stunned onlookers that he has been a long-time fan, and, sussing the situation in the customs bay, he promised the doc that he would have delivered some local drugs as a form of welcome to Aussie Hunter S. Hunter rests at the window, holding a large bag of grass to the light and making approving mumbles. The open package reveals several gleaming plastic sachets of white powder, cocaine. Booze and eyes arrive, glasses clink, smoke drifts towards the ceiling. A portable cassette unit shrieks and a mass of white crystal is sprinkled ready for use on a glass top table. Oh yes, the tour has begun in earnest. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the Forgotten Australia Your Stories episode. I was Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Australia tour manager. There aren't too many journalists who are more famous than Hunter S. Thompson. While David Frost is still remembered, it's mostly because his interviews with the former US president were dramatised in the excellent 2008 film Frost Nixon. Hunter S. Thompson, meanwhile, was the star character in two feature films made while he was still alive, 1981's Where the Buffalo Roam, starring Bill Murray, and 1998's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, in which he was played by Johnny Depp. Three years after he took his own life in 2005, he was also the subject of the documentary Gonzo, the life and work of Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. Nearly 20 years after his death, the man's books, most notably Hell's Angels, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72, and the collection The Great Shark Hunt remain immensely popular, and, for better and for worse, influential on readers, writers and thinkers of all stripes. Despite how large Hunter S. Thompson has loomed in popular culture, 
his Australian interlude has been almost completely forgotten. But his two weeks down under did come at a crucial part in his career. This was the first time the Doctor had been invited to speak, to perform, outside of the United States of America. It was a measure of just how far his fame had spread around the globe. What would these Aussies make of him? And what would he make of them? The sad truth is, we barely knew what to do with Hunter S. Thompson. In Australia, he's far more famous in 2023, nearly 20 years after his death, than he was in 1976 at the height of his powers. Back then, for most Australians, he was a minor figure, a curiosity from the counterculture. And the relatively small crowds who did turn out to see him demanded that the doctor turn on the craziness, that he blow their minds with the sort of antics found in the pages of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Australian ticket holders wanted a trippy Technicolor tornado who'd tear up their land of Oz, an acid head agitator to flip down under, upside down. What they got instead was a serious political and social commentator, a man who wanted to be asked intelligent questions. Unfortunately, Hunter S. Thompson was more or less bombarded with bombastic inanities. His responses, not helped by his Kentucky drawl and some crappy sound systems, led to chaotic crowd scenes that left fans furious and the Doctor deeply bemused. The Australian experience would encapsulate the problem that came to define Hunter S. Thompson's life after he found fame. Hunter S. Thompson was a serious writer and social and political critic who just happened to wrap his insights in drink and drug soaked first person exaggeration and surreal satirical comedy. But it was only the latter that most people were actually interested in. Give us the madness, they screamed. Hunter S. Thompson's persona would become a prison. Accounts of his Australian visit can be found in a smattering of newspapers from 1976. You can also hear his National Press Club luncheon in Canberra via a recording at Trove. The link is in your show notes. And I've also been kindly allowed to play a little excerpt in this episode. But the inside story of the tour could only be told by Peter Olszewski, aka JJ McRoach, in his own Gonzo first-person account. It's titled Mandraxed Wombats and the Monster in Room 450, and it can be found in his 1979 book A Dozen Dopey Yarns, Tales from the Pot Prohibition. As a firm believer in writers being compensated fairly for their works, and thanks to contributions from Patreon and Apple supporters, I was able to pay Peter to read the excerpt we heard and for the right to use it in this podcast. Peter's article takes us from the airport and into the Sydney press conference that welcomed Hunter S. Thompson, from there to the luncheon at the National Press Club in Canberra and to the tumultuous lectures at the Sydney and Melbourne town halls. Then there's Hunter S. Thompson's appearance on The Don Lane Show, where he dropped the F-bomb live on TV. Most unforgettably, Peter flew from Melbourne to Sydney with Hunter S. Thompson in a light plane, through the worst electrical storm either had ever seen, while they were both tripping on acid. Fear and loathing down under, indeed. In this episode, Peter joins me to recall his time with the Doctor, including the shy side of the man that few people saw or even suspected existed. 
But first, to help set the scene, I've done my own dive into what Hunter S. Thompson was in for when he arrived. So let's take a look at the Australian cultural landscape at the end of September and start of October 1976 and at how the press received Hunter S. Thompson. As we've heard, Billy Connolly was then doing a tour of Australian capital cities. But the Big Yin's tour would start in chaos when angry Scottish fans, who'd expected a countryman doing songs in a kilt, stormed the Brisbane stage and demanded their money back. It was a really scary scene that had Billy rattled, and it was close to a brawl. Comedy was far safer in the hands of traditionalists. That's why Ronnie Corbett, the smaller of the two Ronnies, had no such problems at this time when he played sold-out shows around the country. More laughs could be had at live performances of The Naked Vickers Show, featuring Nolene Brown, or at the stage show Wonder Woman, starring Reg Livermore. If you're an old punk, you might remember 1976 as being the year that the Sex Pistols broke through. Yet, in Australia in September, ABBA ruled the airwaves with their hit single Dancing Queen. Disco and danceability were top of the pops, with the number two chart position held by Elton John and Kiki D's Don't Go Breaking My Heart, while number three belonged to The Silvers with their hit Boogie Fever. And after 14 weeks on the charts, Fox's single bed was still at number six. At the movies, adult audiences were embracing the relatively recent R rating. New release nudie movies included Confessions of a Driving Instructor, Russ Meyer's Vixen, and the utterly gross Nazi sexploitation Love Camp 7. If you wanted to get hot and horny in your Holden at the drive-in, you could catch the double of Andy Warhol's Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula. On the airwaves, there was a mixture of the Aussie and the imported, the old and the new. The very oldest, the radio serial Blue Hills, this week broadcast its very last episode, number 5,795, while on TV, the raunchy number 96 was still going strong and its star Abigail remained the number one sex symbol in the country. Elsewhere on the idiot box, there were a lot of American repeats that entire generations would be weaned on. The Partridge Family, The Flintstones, F Troop, The Brady Bunch, and so on. Along with fresh episodes of Happy Days, Good Times, and Welcome Back Cotter. And if you wanted late night chat on the small screen, then you had to stay up until 9.30 so you could catch the lanky yank. That was Don Lane, who despite having been busted for reefer, remained super popular as the host of the live Don Lane Show. 1976 Australia, post-Watergate, post the dismissal, post the Vietnam War, was a place where progressive and conservative forces were staking out their turf on issues like race, gender, sexuality and equality. Don Dunstan, Premier of South Australia, had just come out with the radical prediction that one day homosexuals would be accepted in public office and even in politics. Quote, The change will come when people realise that a person's sexual preference is not a matter of public concern. 
Don Dunstan's comments were published in the gay magazine Campaign to mark the anniversary of the first year of homosexual acts between consenting adults in private being legal in South Australia. But it'd be another six years before homosexuality was decriminalised in New South Wales. On the flip side of Don Dunstan's push for tolerance, the Australian states, including South Australia, had, in September 1976, announced a joint plan to bring in harsher penalties for drug pushers. Maximum fines of $100,000 and up to 25 years in jail. Most murderers at this time got out of prison after 15 years. But the drug situation was urgent. After all, the Australian newspaper had just broken a page one story about, quote, satanic initiation ceremonies to drug-oriented communities. This had been uncovered by federal MP for Kennedy, Bob Catter Sr., who claimed these evildoers menacing North Queensland were part of a narcotics trade that was, quote, highly organised and even worse than that in New York City. In American politics, what was really big news, at least for the Daily Mirror in Sydney, was that Democratic presidential candidate Jimmy Carter had used the F-bomb in a print interview with Norman Mailer. This swear had justified the paper running a front-page screamer, Carter uses that word. So it was into this Australia that Hunter S. Thompson, that foul-mouthed, Carter-supporting arch-drug fiend came a-stumbling. Mainstream Australia had little idea who he was. But the same was not true of our media personnel. They turned out in force to the Sydney press conference. The reports they filed would be a mixture of the admiring and the sneering. Often these journalists would try to squeeze a bit of their own gonzo flair into their articles. Just as often the story was the story, that is, reports focused on the reporters. The Australian's correspondent was by far the worst offender. In a dreadfully snobby 550-word article, readers did manage to learn two interesting things about Hunter S. Thompson that should have merited follow-up. One, he confessed to being rather nervous at being the centre of press attention. Two, he believed his image had been distorted by the media. But other than that, the Australian barely gave space to the man's actual opinions. Instead, the journalist went on and on about his drinking, about fanboy reporters asking for his autograph, and about the unprofessionalism of the whole circus. Quote, His audience consists of more than the usual press gang. The small top-floor room at the Boulevard Hotel has been filled by a ragged collection of interviewers from the Film and Television School, the New South Wales Institute of Technology, rock magazines, and Lord only knows where else. They get in each other's way, fall over cables, and foul up the cameraman's exposure meter readings. When the subject finally enters the room, a good half-hour later, they hang on his every word. The Age correspondent was more interested in what the man actually had to say, asking him to define gonzo. Quote, Sipping from a can of Australian beer and drawing constantly on a cigarette, he explained that gonzo journalism meant intense participation on behalf of the writer. Hunter S. Thompson had said, It's highly subjective, judgmental. Uh, it's not calm. It's a pretty active kind of journalism. 
In a deliberate understatement, Hunter S. Thompson had said that Whitlam's dismissal was, quote, slightly irregular, but it did fit into how he viewed the political world. He went on, quote, It sounded a bit like a fine print clause, but nothing surprises me in politics. You know, after you've seen the films of Jack Kennedy being killed and Bobby Kennedy, the idea that one politician in Australia could take the government away from somebody else seems entirely rational. When you listen to the recording of the Press Club luncheon in Canberra, you hear Hunter S. Thompson right at the start tell organisers, quote, I'm turning into a nervous wreck now. It's a little glimpse of the man behind the legend. When he was introduced, he got cheers and applause. Then he said, Something's wrong here, but uh, I was, I'm still trying to eat. And I had no, no speech and nothing to say. Uh... I suppose however we may as well just deal with reality as it comes. All of you are here for, uh, I'm not sure what. I could tell some really ugly Australian jokes, but, uh, <laughs> I really, the truth is I had nothing to say, and, uh, if I did, I'd probably save it up for when I were either running for office or, uh, trying to steal from somebody, like a politician. So I, I'd rather just, uh, if you have any questions you'd like to ask, uh, I understand the journalists are all down in front, so we'll take most of the questions from back there. <laughs> By the way, well, I think on this occasion we might open questions up generally, not restrict them only to media members. But well, nevertheless, would you state your uh, name and organisation or association? George <laughs> If you didn't catch it, that was George Negus asking the first question, what did Hunter S. Thompson want to be asked? Later, a young Kerry O'Brien would ask a better one. The Press Club luncheon does make good listening, but you do have to pay attention. The Age would give it a mixed review, quote, Dr. Thompson came unprepared with no notes and no speech in mind, although he is in Australia on a lecture tour. He merely invited questions, then pondered, pontificated, mumbled and muttered his way through them, a sort of garbled gonzo. But these reports and reviews were almost all found in the broadsheet newspapers, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and The Australian, which were aimed at middle and upper class readers. I went through the high circulation Sydney tabloids, the Daily Mirror, The Sun and The Daily Telegraph at the State Library of New South Wales and there was barely a mention of Hunter S. Thompson. He just wasn't as newsworthy as other stories from this time. Such as? Well, the editors of The Daily and Sunday Mirror prioritised a cop who was being chased by a ghost, a dog named Bozo who liked nothing better than getting on the beers down at the boozer, a pensioner who threatened to blow up the lottery office if he didn't win first prize, and a charity that had put up a $100,000 reward for anyone who could catch a yowie. But the wild and mysterious creature that was right in Sydney's midst? The tabloids weren't hugely interested, even when he did and said stuff that was squarely in their sensational remit. Hunter S. Thompson did his shows at the Sydney Town Hall on the 6th and 7th of October. A journalist named Ian Perlman, writing for Thurunka, 
the newspaper of the University of New South Wales, reviewed the second show. Quote, The audience was the most varied mix I have ever seen at one venue. There were your students, but not too many students could afford the six bucks entrance, and assorted radicals, the curious, the infirm, the intellectuals, the pseudo-intellectuals, and, surprisingly, a fair number of trendies. There was not a big crowd. Perlman said that many members of the audience were perched like nervous gargoyles on their seats before the show, rehearsing their, quote, shocking yet profound questions. But given the chance, they fucked it. Quote, the poor man was completely swamped in bullshit. Person after person stood up at the microphones, conveniently placed about the hall, firing vague and demanding questions at Hunter S., answering themselves in the same breath before he could even attempt a reply, and then criticising him for not giving clear, precise and logical answers to their obscure, garbled and often unintelligible questions. And it got rowdier than that. One small article did appear in Sydney's The Sun. Here's the whole thing. Headline. The Yokes on Hunter S. Quote, a meeting held by American journalist Hunter S. Thompson in the Sydney Town Hall last night broke into bedlam, with abuse being shouted and eggs thrown. Thompson, famous for his writings on Hell's Angels, drugs and American politics, stood disbelieving as the hall erupted. Does this thing go on all the time? asked Thompson. We call it bedlam, he said, as eggs crashed around him. Some people walked out because the sound reproduction system made hearing difficult. End quote. The bulletin reported of one of the shows that people were shouting, We've come for the madness. Give us some fucking madness. This is the sort of story that the tabloids ought to have loved. And given that Jimmy Carter's F-bomb had been front-page news, the tabloids really missed a trick when Hunter S. Thompson went on Don Lane and did the same thing, dropped the F-bomb live into millions of Australian lounge rooms. But instead of a front page on the Daily Mirror, Hunter S. Thompson just got a tiny mention in The Sun. Headline, US Writer Beats the Blip. Quote, American journalist Hunter S. Thompson caused a few heart flutters among Channel 9 executives when he dropped that four-letter word on Monday night's Don Lane show. Aware of Mr. Thompson's reputation, the station arranged for the interview to be conducted on a 10-second delay. But according to the program's executive producer, Peter Feynman, technical problems were to blame and the blip didn't blip. A spokesman for the Broadcasting Control Board said Channel 9 would be asked for an explanation, but it was unlikely that action would be taken. Towards the end of Hunter S. Thompson's Australian tour, when he was about to go on stage in Melbourne, The Age ran a good-sized profile and interview. Its headline accidentally or otherwise, summed up the doctor's relative obscurity in Australia even still. Quote, Fear and loathing Australia style. Hunter is who, what, when, where, why? The Age's writer John Larkin had been at the Sydney shows and he'd witnessed what had happened when the audience's expectations weren't met. He said those shows at the town hall, quote, had been so bizarre that by comparison, Dr. Thompson had actually emerged as the only sane thing there. John Larkin went on. Many people there came stoned out of their skulls, expecting to be further lit up by the contact, to stroke senses with the last travelling guru going at city prices, to have him endorse their habit, 
to lie back and be entertained like watching television, to misbehave and get away with it, to do and say whatever they liked, to treat him like a circus. He continued, It all came unstuck because Thompson, for all his razzle-dazzle in the first-person encounters in his writing, is sensitive, concerned and a serious writer. Most of all, he is a humorous man when possible, and the Sydney shows were hardly in that mood. There was violence among the mood of the crowd, as Thompson said, a sort of undirected grudge atmosphere, crazy people likely to do anything. At one stage, they presented him with a mortar bomb. When Larkin finally got to interview the doctor, Hunter S. Thompson said he didn't know why there'd been such a bad vibe at the Sydney shows. Quote, it wasn't a downright hostility. It was the kind of violence you get from frustration. I don't know what they're frustrated about. I haven't been here very long. Hunter S. Thompson hated that he'd been hit by so many generalizations posing as questions, but he said he did like Australia. He appreciated their very slothful kind of life and found that he was interested and surprised Australia had such energy, but it was totally undirected. Hunter S. Thompson remained surprised that people had actually paid to come and see him talk. Quote, It's completely crazy. I wouldn't pay anything to hear anybody speak that I can think of. He said he'd come to Australia because he was curious. John Larkin, having heard about the incident high in the sky, asked, Did you feel more at home on the plane in the storm between Melbourne and Sydney? The doctor replied enthusiastically, quote, Oh, I love that. Yeah, I could have stayed in that plane another four or five hours if we'd had enough drink and vomit bags. Yep, that's my idea of fun. That was pretty close to the edge. Giant balls of lightning exploding right outside your window. It was one of the roughest and most violent rides I've ever had. I could have died very happily on that plane. A bolt of lightning. I'd pay to go out that way, right over Sydney Harbour. Wonderful. After Hunter S. Thompson's death, he actually did get something like that send-off. Here's how the New York Times reported on his funeral on the 21st of August, 2005. Quote, Woody Creek, Colorado. With a deafening boom, the ashes of Hunter S. Thompson were blown into the sky from a 153-foot tower as relatives and a star-studded crowd bid an irreverent farewell to the founder of gonzo journalism. As the ashes erupted from the tower's pinnacle, red, white, blue and green fireworks lit up the sky late Saturday over Thompson's home for nearly 10 minutes as the crowd cheered. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Fire. 
30 years before Hunter S. Thompson's last blast as a fireworks display over Colorado, Peter Olszewski rode the lightning with the man over Sydney Harbour in a light plane on acid. Here he is from Cambodia to tell us about life with the doctor. Yeah, it was wild. It was very interesting to sort of uh, to, uh, meet the man behind the legend. So what had your career been like up until that point? I started out my career in advertising and went to and was sent to uh, see the uh, Woodstock movie to copy the uh, free screen device for a mobile commercial I was writing. And uh, I became an instant hippie, dropped out, and I worked in the alternate publishing area. Never made much money, but had a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, so uh, I was just sort of doing various sort of uh, uh, things with alternate newspaper work, and I worked for... Uh, the pop magazines, so I'd go sit, I edited go sit for a while. Melbourne editor of Ram magazine for a while, all that sort of stuff. And, and quite enjoying it. And sort of, uh, I was sort of caught up in the whole, what was called then the new journalist movement. And what was the countercultural press like in Australia then? Well, actually quite lively, but very predictable, you know. And, and that's what I enjoyed about Thompson, is that he, was, he came from that counterculture. But he was different. He was a gun-bearing lunatic type of thing when, you know, uh, uh, all, all the hippies were, were ready and were into peace and no guns. So he was a bit of a uh, anomaly. What was the national mood like in Australia in 1976? I mean, Vietnam was over. The fallout from that had just begun. Watergate had happened. Nixon was out. Carter was about to go to election against Ford. And the dismissal of Whitlam was still fresh. Describe for me the, the mood in Australia in 1976 as you were preparing to bring Hunter S. Thompson out. Well, Australia was one of uh, weariness, confusion, and sort of a, uh, a vague hope because we'd come out of a period of incredible optimism. Of uh, if you look at historically what we went through, uh, you know, we, the world changed through our by our generation and such, and we thought we, we, we were ruling the world until these things happened, you know. Vietnam happened, uh, the checking of Whitman happened, and we suddenly realised it was a, a new world of face. And also what was happening to the counterculture was we were uh, once again subsumed by capitalism. And, uh, you know, my horns like uh, Carlton, that sort of stuff became, well, it was the birth of the uppies, you know. Yeah. So I suppose, in a way, idealism started to be abandoned for capitalism, or uh, the hippie of today became a uh, money manager of tomorrow with a with a, a an inexpensively bought house in Carlton, which made him a million dollars a couple of years later, type of thing. You know? And you'd gone the other way. You'd gone from being the Don Draper of Australia yeah. doing Marlboro ads to being a a marijuana party activist. Exactly, yeah, exactly. I, I, I left school as an extremely cynical young bloke and figured out that the uh, only way to make money out of writing was to be, was advertising. And I read the Vance Packard book, which condemned advertising, which for some reason I quite liked. And uh, I had a job in Melbourne's best ad agency even before I left school, just through applying and writing them letters and so on and so forth. And so uh, I, so I made you know, really good money. I was writing uh, 
Marlborough commercials, writing live Marlborough commercials, or Philip Morris commercials for, uh, for the Graham Kennedy show and so on and so forth. And uh, but I'd also been living in Carlton, and you know, I couldn't escape the influence of the hippie them around me. And then when I went to see Woodstock to purloin the, uh, their, their production values, I thought, fuck this, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> and uh, I stuck more dope, and then I sort of, because I had, you know, I had uh, skills that were honed in the workplace, I was able to set myself up as a, as a hippie publisher and started knocking out strange magazines. The first one was a very strange thing called Mare Arras, which was sort of a, a, a hybrid of, of, uh, of um, Mad Magazine with laced with less hippie politics of the day. Excellent. And in fact, uh, you know, in America, there was a magazine called Punk, which became quite successful. And, uh, I read an interview with the, with the uh, publisher of Punk, and he said he was influenced by this strange magazine he found in Australia called, called Rats. So I thought, oh, I had an impact there, yeah. Bit by bit, uh, as the need for more money became apparent, I started to double back into the mainstream and then re-entered the mainstream. You know? So, yeah, you uh, used your professional skills against the establishment to some extent. For a while, and then I became... I went back into the system again, but not in another choice, into, into mainstream publishing. And in fact, I ended up getting a job on, of all things, Truth Newspaper. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, I remember being interviewed on 3CR, and the guy was saying... And I sold out. I said, no, I never sold out. I just bought in. And how did um, the Hunter S. Thompson thing come about for you? Well, I was working with a, uh, a, um, a guy called Michael Roberts who had, who, uh, had a flea market in Carlton. And uh, I was doing bits and pieces with him. And he started doing a few odd local concerts. And he, he wanted to be a, uh, a uh, entrepreneur. And he wanted to get an overseas act, but he, he said all the good music acts were all taken up by ha- having long-term contract deals and so on. So well, there was no way for him to get into the uh, uh, international uh, concert gig. And at that time, I'd been reading about Lexus Button and Thompson. So I said, oh, maybe uh, forget about music and why not try a, 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 a concert, a, a lecture tour of Hunter S. Thompson kind of, it's doing well in the States. And surprisingly, it came together very easily. He wrote a letter and within a couple of weeks, there was a deal. Why do you think Hunter S. Thompson did it at that point? America was going into the 1976 election. It was pretty crucial. Gerald Ford had decided he would contest for the Republicans. You know, it had been a, a long horrible sort of process for American politics with Watergate and the end of Vietnam. I mean, this was Hunter S. Thompson's, you know, stomping ground in terms of covering politics, but he chose to be in Australia on a lecture tour instead. True. I think that the two things that uh, drove him to Australia were curiosity and cash. Right. Because it became evident from hanging out with him and his wife, who, who, who joined the tour, that uh, while there was a, uh, a uh, big movement around the old Hunter S., he wasn't making all that much money. Got it. And found it difficult to keep the uh, lifestyle together, cash-wise. 
And when it was announced that he was coming out and you were going to be like, you know, the publicist and the liaison, you were going to be the, the, the lion tamer. How did you feel at that prospect? Well, so the, I, I never quite came to terms with it. all happened very quickly. You know, I never had time to really consider what I was doing. I was just into the fray before I knew what happened. And, and as I uh, wrote in my book, you know, suddenly there I am uh, looking at this uh, uh, strange creature called Hunter S. Thompson and feeling like a little rat dancing in his feet, you know, because he came out of that area and he had an act. And he he he, uh, he played it very well. He came out and he immediately started being abusive, you know. Who, who told me to ditch all my drugs? Who said there'd be a custom search? Nobody searched me. I ditched all my masculine halfway to Australia, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, right, here we go. Under a Thompson. <laughs> yeah. you sure is off. You say in your uh, book that you got into quote-unquote training a couple of months earlier to make sure you could kind of go the distance, match him joint for joint, trip for trip, or at least, you know, have a chance at doing that. Is that true? Did you did you put yourself into I was, I was, I was half joking, but, you know, I, I did sort of uh, uh, up my intake of things because I, I had a suspicion that I was being a cynical person and coming from advertising and I wasn't quite sure of the whole Hunter S. Thompson thing was one big media myth or whether there was a reality. But I thought, if there is a reality, I might just have to, uh, uh, you know, uh, do a bit of legwork in the terms of uh, keeping up with substance abuse. It's gonzo gonzo publicity right there. Yes, indeed. How big was the buzz generated by his, you know, um, his coming to Australia? It was huge in the media, you know. It was just, you know, getting, getting publicity was no problem, you know. It was just sort of like... Uh, it was insane, but that didn't translate into uh, ticket sales, unfortunately. You know? So, why do you think uh, that was? Because the Australian public isn't all that switched on, man. You know, like uh, uh, you know, the uh, the inner in urban sort of uh, uh, dominant meme is only a meme. It's sort of not really trans doesn't translate into into the normal commercial world, you know. It's so while there was an intense following, it was a small following. Funny because now, like, I imagine he could sell out 10 nights in a row in Australia in a big, big capacity theatre. Back then, he was at the actual height of his powers and his fame, and people didn't turn up. Yeah, and bear in mind also, it was a lecture tour, which uh, um, uh, not many people... Uh, attuned to, you know what I mean? It's, again, it's a small market. So I think we used to forget how small the alternative market was. And in a sense, Hunter, even though he got a lot of media publicity, he was loved by, by media, he was an alternate act. And, uh, you know, that didn't translate into Rolling Stone-type numbers, you know? Sure. And how was your experience with him in those first few days? I mean, you immediately had him getting a delivery of drugs, and then there was a massive press conference in Sydney with standing room only outside. How exciting was it? It was very exciting and extremely fascinating and interesting because bit by bit, um, Michael was very, very busy sort of doing the organising, so more and more 
I became the uh, the uh, contact with the old uh, the old doctor, and bit by bit I sort of uh, I loved him very much because he was a contradictory character. He was quite a shy guy, and uh, uh, you know uh, he found he was bemused by the whole uh, movement that had created formed around him and sort of uh, handled as best as he could. And the media was sort of... Uh, everyone had to keep up with the dock. That's what I noticed, you know. Everybody was drinking and everybody was drugging. And, and you know, I mean, the, uh, the press conference we had in, uh, in Canberra, when we went, that was unusual. We didn't have a positive camera. Well, we just went there to do a media, a media we were invited by the media, the media people, and uh, we went to, went to address the uh, the press club there, and that was sort of like uh, uh, every journalist there was doing a hundred Thompson and getting as drunk and as out of it as possible. By the end of the evening, most of the people had passed out. <laughs> I listened to that uh, press conference this morning, actually. It's available um, on Trove in its entirety. Right. And it's quite extraordinary to me that, you know, he says, Hunter S. Thompson says, I've been awake for six days and five nights. I'm going for the record of, you know, seven days without rest, a la God, gets good laughs for that. But, you know, given his being awake so long and clearly having drunk so much and taken whatever in the preceding week, He's incredibly lucid and incredibly thoughtful and seems to have it all over the journalists. They, they sort of seem to want him to be like he is on the page when he's an incredibly kind of reasoned, thoughtful political commentator. Well, the more drugs he took, the more lucid he became, which is the opposite of most people, you know. Although there was one night where he, he lost it and... Uh, I can see the care which his wife's handing sort of uh, helped him through his freak out was that this happened every now and then, that behind closed doors, you know. So even Hunter S. Thompson had his limits. Sure. But those limits were pretty extraordinary, right? Pretty extraordinary indeed, yeah. How did you yeah. go trying to keep up with him? Uh, I decided the best thing to do was not to keep up with him at all because, uh, you know, I needed, I needed to to uh, to uh, have it together to a fair degree to uh, to uh, be a worthwhile assistant. Yeah? And he was the star, not me. Huh? Yeah, the account that you gave of the lectures in Sydney and Melbourne, it seemed like the audience were really out of step with who he was, what he wanted to talk about. They wanted him to, you know, bring on the madness kind of thing. Is that correct? And, and and that was the. That was the conundrum of his whole sort of being. He didn't quite know what on earth he was supposed to do. You know, he said, "You know, I feel like a goddamn, you know, freak up people, people prodding me with sticks to see how I react." You know, um, so and as I said, he he didn't become a flaky wacko when he was out of it. He became a, a more lucid intellect. You know, so so he's. Uh, his, his lectures as such were clashes with people sort of uh, wanting something that they didn't even know what they wanted, you know, and him not quite sure what he was delivering, so he would just go through his 
talk as best he could and reacted to the audience. Basically, it became just a, uh, rather than a, a speech, it was sort of reaction to questions from the audience. Yeah. Like a Q&A, a Q&A on LSD. It it seems to me, it seems to me that the people in the audience, not not the not the national press club, they sort of sort of asked fairly sort of intelligent, politically based questions once they got into the sort of swing of things with him. But from your accounts of the uh, Melbourne and Sydney public uh, lectures, the audience seemed to want to for him to create some sort of scene that they would then be part of the story of that he might I don't know write, write about. I wanted some sort of act. I wanted, you know, some sort of, like I did, set up. I one stage, you know, I'm supposed to be the wild man from Borneo or something like that, you know. So that was the problem. And they, and a lot of the people from the audience were uh, not so much Hunter S. Thompson fans, but Fearing Loving Las Vegas fans. They yeah. wanted to fight for Fearing Loving in Las Vegas. Now, the funny thing is, is the one person in Australia who actually got that was you. <laughs> tell me, well, tell, just tell me about your couple of weeks there with the man. What, 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 what are the enduring memories, fears, excitements from it? Well, once I got over the whole sort of a novelty thing, I got down to sort of dealing with a with a, a person and his wife, and uh, and uh, yeah, well, I became sort of protective of him in a way. You know, um, I was sort of a help him through the pain of being a wild beast, as he put it, uh, to uh, uh, you know, make sure all the preparations were right for his, for his tour and for his, yeah, yeah, make sure things work. You know, I mean, from the early days before his, he, he, I was with him for three, two or three days before his wife arrived. And I got to know him then quite in an industry way. Strange things happened. Like, I didn't put this in that book because it was private. And he was still married at that stage, but uh, he used to have a null nullar at Canberra at the airport. He, he saw a souvenir stand and he saw an actual null nullar, which he thought was a fantastic weapon. You know? It was just so, so basic and so crude but so effective. And that became his personal sort of uh, weapon. And whenever he, he needed to wear joining rooms, he would bang on the, on the, on the wall with his null nullar. And I knew that the doctor needed something. So one morning, there's a bang, bang, bang on the wall, and I go in, and he's, he's in bed with a woman. And she's sitting up on the phone. And he pointed he said, she's, she's calling her husband and telling her husband that she's just in bed with Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's pretty weird, Hunter. So uh, what, 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 what do we need to do now? He said, well, uh, I'm trying to explain that she needs to go now because we've got things to do. Can you organise that? Well, okay. <laughs> so, through that, I sort of saw a different side of Hunter. And as I said, he was totally bemused uh, and confused about his fame. Yeah. It became not a fame for his writing, but a fame for his legend. You know? Yeah. And people like as I got to know him, I realised he's actually quite a shy man. And quite often we'd sit around a bit, just shooting the breeze with him and his wife. And I realised he was just a fairly quiet, shy man who had built a person personality that sort of got out of control. Yeah. And his wife was like, yes, well, 
Then Hunter gets the product by Hunter. So just on a, we'll come back to that because that's a really interesting thing. I think it's really interesting as well that you didn't put that into your piece because at the National Press Club, he actually said that had become the difficulty for him knowing people like George McGovern so well that he'd become friends with the subjects and he could no longer truthfully report on politics because he was holding things back, not out of an ethical concern, but because of a friendship situation. So yeah, that's, that's sort of what you did. Because he, he moved for, he moved for he moved from being a journalist to being a celebrity. On one of the uh, funnier, more controversial elements, Hunter S. Thompson managed to get the F-bomb onto the airwaves on the Don Lane show on Channel 9 by accident uh, because of a 10-second delay problem. How big a deal was yeah. that back in the day? Well, yeah, it got publicity that way, yeah. Don Lane pretended to be outraged and angry and... It was just all part of, part of the publicity mill. And again, part of the curiosity factor that Hunter knew about his own life is there he is. Why is it fun? was because the costume, like he, he was clashing with the costume lady, the makeup lady. That's right. And he had an idea about how he should look. And she draped a coat over his shoulder. And when he actually saw himself uh, on, on the screen, he saw his fucking coat, goddamn coat thing, and got rid of that. That's why he swore, you know? Yeah. I mean, Don Lane would have loved it. Uh, of course he did, yeah, but everyone had to make it outrage. Did Hunter S. Thompson... Did Hunter S. Thompson know that Don Lane had had his own marijuana issues years before? Yeah, I told him a little bit about Don Lane, yeah, yeah. I thought he did about that, yeah. Yeah, I, I imagine Don Lane would have thought Hunter S. Thompson was terrific. Uh, well, I think so, yeah. That's what I said. They all had to fame, shot and outrage. Uh, but it did go air, and I think it could have been leaked anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These days, no one would even bat an eye. Um, now, no, just before that controversial moment when Hunter S dropped the F-bomb on live TV, you guys had been on what sounds like the scariest flight from Melbourne to Sydney in history. Tell me about that. Well, I think it was scary because we're on drugs. There <laughs> 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 was a rough ride. You know? So of, uh, you know? the, the electricity yeah. storm, the lightning storm outside the window, yeah. all of that's all fair income. It was pretty serious, you know, and when you load up. But when I say I, I uh, didn't try to keep up with him on the drugs, that didn't mean to say that I wasn't on drugs. Yeah. But what I could manage. And mostly it was LSD because that was his, that was his favourite. You know, and every, every time he saw me being anxious, he'd feed, feed me out with a bit of LSD to calm me down type of thing. You know? So I had my own idea. It was a pretty big thing for me to be organising and to, you know, get a handle on being, uh, being the, uh, the zookeeper. <laughs> I think being the zookeeper tripping on acid on a light plane in the middle of a thunderstorm, electrical storm with Hunter S. Thompson is a pretty peak experience in terms of gonzo journalism. Well, I suppose it is, actually. Yeah, there you go. I mean, that was the thing, you know. I, you know I mean, right from the very beginning, uh, I sort of started, yeah, it sort of created a bit of a bond between us two, you know, like uh, 
you know, the first big memory I had really was, you know, I, I was had to drive him around uh, uh, Melbourne in the tour limo, and I was still in awe of, you know, of, of this guy. So I didn't trust him out, and he trusted I was nervous, and so he. Uh, that was the first time he introduced me to his LSD, which he he had in his wallet. They were like uh, postage stamps, blue, with a Robert Crumb character and a people on trucking character on it. You know? Yeah. And he gave him this piece of blotting paper, and he said, "Yeah, put this on your tongue and suck it slowly." And uh, of course, being nervous, I swallowed it. And then the next thing that happened was that uh, for City Limits came on. The radio, car radio, Tina Turner's Nutbush City, City Limits, the same time as Mrs. Primo LSD hit in, and I uh, I went for it. You know? <laughs> I floored the car, the accelerator, and roared through the streets and flew over the car park barrier into the underground car park and crashed the car in the underground car parking space. Wow. When, it all, when, 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 when it all died down, we finished. Thompson looked at me and he said, uh, I, I told you to chew that slowly. <laughs> I said, yeah, I've, got, I've got the message, Doc. <laughs> wow. So that was a lot things, but that to me wasn't the most, you know. Again, that element was interesting, but I was more fascinated than learning about the writer because I wanted to be a writer too, you know what I mean? And, and uh, yeah, no, he's a very kind bloke. He, he did things for me. He actually, he actually, uh, um, I never told him I was going to write to, to write uh, a story, but I did have it in the back of my mind. Yeah. And then when the two was I have to write about this. Uh, I don't. I'm not going to ask permission of Thompson. Fucking, you know, I'm going to be the Gonzo journalist here and just go for it. Because in America, you have to. Sign, you know, everything's contracted and so on and so forth. And uh, so I wrote the book and I was curious what would happen. Uh, uh, I sent him some copies. I sent him a copy. And uh, I wrote back a lovely letter saying that he found the book very interesting and enjoyed it very much. And I was quite, he's been quite honest about that. But I sent him half a dozen copies. He wanted to give it to a few friends. And, he also gave it to an agent uh, in San Francisco who then contacted me and said that you know, he was interested in my work. That, that book wasn't quite right in time for, for America, but keep in touch with him type of thing. So, you know. Uh, That's very cool. There was that, yeah, that com camaraderie, camaraderie thing, you know. And as I said, quite often, some of my father's memories were not of the Gonzoid things, but, of, you know, I remember sitting after the tour in a, in a quiet Carlton, a quiet in a suburban cafe. I think it was in St Kilda in Melbourne where nobody recognised us and just sitting there chatting about what happened in the tour and just just being people, you know what I mean? It was really quite pleasant. How did you feel about how the rest of his life played out? A little bit sad because uh, he never... He never reached the greatness of fear. You know, I think fear and labor in Las Vegas is just a magical book. It's just a brilliant, 
sort of a piece of comic commentary, commentary, and uh, uh, that to me was what Hunter S. Thompson was all about. I mean, I, I enjoyed his previous books; they were good, they were great. But, but Pyramid in Las Vegas was a classic, and he never got anywhere near completing that. You know, and basically, he was, <coughs> I suppose, live, live on his legend and show out stuff for money and all a bit disillusioned. It is it is a shame that the the way he went out and I guess to some extent that, you know, the celebrity, the personality, the cult of personality is what he's remembered for more than for the writing. It's it's a bit of a shame. Correct. And uh, correct, yeah, and that's why, you know, I was always hoping there'd be some other classic coming out of him that would, you know, reorient everyone back to Hunter Thompson, the man and Hunter Thompson the writer, rather than Hunter S. Thompson, the Gonzo Freak. Yeah. So do you wish he was around for, you know, Trump version one, Trump version two? Oh, look, you know, many people have said to me, uh, there's a couple of people I know in the States who are connected with. <laughs> I have the two of them. Worked work, work, work with, with Hunter as well. And, you know, it was all, the, the conversation's always about what on earth would Hunter have made and done with Trump? He's a Gonzo character that could have been created by Hunter. Many thanks to Peter Olszewski for all of his assistance with this episode. I'll be back with a new episode of Forgotten Australia as soon as possible. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. <laughs>